Okay. Wow. Welcome. Can't tell you how pleased I am to see everyone here today and the fact that we're here at the, right at the start of Emerging Critics 2. We're really delighted that you've all joined us. Um, it's taken months of work, I would say, for the small team at SRB and for Alan Bett at Creative Scotland to get us to this point. For you, it's day one. For us, it's day how many, Alan? About quite, quite a few. So we're really delighted to, to welcome you here today. Um, we're all here because we believe in a future where critics matter, where discussion on the arts matter. That's why we're welcoming you here today. I'll be joined on stage by Rosemary Goring, who is the co-editor with Alan Taylor of Scottish Review of Books and a mentor. Alan Taylor, who is the founding editor of Scottish Review of Books. Laura Waddle, who is in the second row there, who is a mentee from the 2016-17 round of Emerging Critics. And Alan Bett, who's from Creative Scotland. And of course, I'll introduce the mentors in more detail later, but what I can say now is that we have with us today Andrew Crumey, Alan Hunter, David Robinson, all sitting over there, Rosemary Goring, Alan Radcliffe, and Laura is a roving <coughs> mentor. Laura has a lot of experience in many different fields, and we have invited her in as a roving mentor so that she can go around each group and offer her advice and her experience to all of you, rather than to one group in particular. So we're very fortunate to have Laura with us. In a few moments, Alan's going to start off the proceedings, and then Rosemary will tell you a little more about the, the programme and how it's worked before. Just a little introduction. And then Alan Taylor will talk for 14 minutes, <laughs> about, about criticism and his own experience over the years, of which I reckon is probably, what, about a minute for every working year? And then we'll break for coffee, and then Laura and Alan will come back up on stage, and they'll talk together about the first round of Emerging Critics, about the digital platform, and about a career that's really a portfolio career, career I would say, Laura, would you say that's fair? But first of all, really what I wanted to say was just a very big welcome to all of our mentees and congratulations on getting a place on the Emerging Critics programme. We had over 60 applications this year, which was fantastic, um, and it took quite a while for us to whittle down to the 16 who we have, um, so we're, we're really pleased. So I'm going to invite Rosemary up next. Um, she's going to say a few more words and then we'll hand over to Alan after that. Hello, um, it's great to be here. And also um, a huge thanks to Jan Rutherford, who is too modest to say any of this, but it's due to Jan that the Scottish Review of Books comes out so brilliantly. I know Alan Taylor, my dear husband, has a great deal to do with it, but Jan really does make the, the wheels go around, and she's the one who's been really the driving force behind emerging critics as well. Um, so thanks, Jan. So does that mean it's my fault I would never, never say that. <laughs> There's an extra bottle of wine up there for you. Um, I should say that um, perhaps I'm on the board of the Scottish Review of Books. Uh, I'm a reviewer for it, and I'm the, what would you call it, the, the commissioning <coughs> editor for the Sunday Herald and for the Herald for Books, but in a sort of consultancy capacity these days. Um, and one of the, it's just fantastic actually to be able to talk about criticism with people who want to do the job that you're doing because sometimes you feel like you're writing out into the void and newspaper sales will maybe make you feel that that's an accurate representation but it's so good when people want to 
discuss books, in my case it's books, but um, for you it'll be lots of different arts, um, and where you actually feel that you're a part of a, an emerging community, not just critics. And there's a thing about getting older, there's lots of good things about getting older, um, I won't talk about the bad, but um, it's great to think that there is a generation beneath you who really are eager for what you're doing so that it's not a case of them snapping at your heels, you hope, although you're very welcome to snap at our heels, but who actually see the, the value of what older critics are doing. And so this is a hope part of the role that I can play. When we did this um, sort of almost like a experimental version of Emerging Critics a couple of years ago, we learned quite a lot from it. It was a completely fresh programme for all of us, both for the mentees and for the mentors. Um, we only really had roughly three sessions with our mentees. Uh, and for me, it certainly felt as though you were only really just getting started. So I'm so pleased to see that the programme has been expanded. So it's a minimum of five sessions. I'm sure it could actually be quite a bit more depending on demand coming, coming from... If I call you students, I hope you don't take that the wrong way. I'm just trying to... The word mentee I find difficult. It makes me think of like extra strong peppermint or something. It gets stuck in my, in my teeth, as it were. But I think that the, the new programme that we've got is much more rigorous um, and will allow both sides, both the students and the, the mentors, I think, to develop. And one of the things that I found, even with the more truncated first year that we did this was quite apart from what anybody in, in my group was getting from it, was how much I felt that I was learning from it, which might sound strange, but um, it was really useful to be able to start thinking about criticism perhaps more analytically. So part of what I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be able to do with my group and what all the, the mentors will be doing is actually helping to talk theoretically about the art of criticism, but just as importantly, because all of us are really are in the business of print and online journalism criticism, we'll be able to give you really useful practical advice because it's fine being the theoretical, but you also need to know actually how to put the job into practice. And so I'll be discussing things, really plain things like, for example, deadlines. My entire life as a journalist is driven by deadlines. And I was amused by one reviewer just a few months ago. Um, she's not a rookie reviewer, but she's um, what you might call an optimist. Uh, I said that the deadline was Tuesday. And so she emailed me at one minute to midnight on the Tuesday with her review saying, great, I got it in on time. Well, of course, I was sound asleep and all the subs had disappeared. So when you talk about things like deadlines, even just knowing that it isn't good enough to be technically correct, you actually need to know that a deadline means within the working day. It sounds like a really obvious point, but you would be surprised at how many actually professional journalists don't even listen to things like that. What's also great about this new programme is the fact that it's covering all the arts. It's not just emerging literary critics. And that, for me, is just such a bonus. It's, it reflects, in some ways, the Scottish Review of Books ethos. The Scottish Review of Books is there about all criticism. We would actually like, I think, probably to expand what we, what we cover. And for us, it's just fabulous to think of the other arts actually being discussed. And although you will all be in groups with somebody who is particularly well tailored to your interests... If you're, for example, in my group, which will be predominantly about books, but I think all of us mentors have a wide awareness of criticism in general, so we can be more elastic than just... You don't have, in my group, for example, just to stick to books. Um, I was just thinking that today, really, we could have had great expectations written up here, because I think that's what we're all feeling as we, as we sit here. 
We have great expectations, the mentors of their students, students of their mentors, but also each of us, I think, of ourselves. And so really that was the, that is the title for it. And I kind of would just leave you with one thing. The, the um, Scottish poet Alistair Reid had a great saying, which um, my husband, Alan, used to shout out to me as I left the flat early in the morning to go to the Herald office. He would probably still be in bed. And he would just shout as I left the door, upwards and onwards with the arts. So I say that too. Alan, I think. Alan Beck next, yes. Hi, everyone. Um, on behalf of Creative Scotland, I would uh, just like to welcome everyone and offer uh, congratulations on being part of what we feel is a very important programme. Emerging Critics is a project that's very close to my heart uh, as somebody who's also dabbled in writing and criticism. Uh, so I've been delighted to be involved in this in some small ways. Jan put in all the hard work uh, to make this happen again this year after a successful pilot in 2016. Um, <clears throat> as a writer, when I a guidance, um, an inspiration I'd always turn to my copy of Pauline Cale's collected writing. I see there's one at the back there. So I'm quite jealous, actually, that you guys get to turn to an actual real-life human being in your time of uh, creative need. Uh, and that's somebody who will have extensive experience and we has generally offered to pass on their skills and knowledge. So I'd just like to offer a huge thanks to all the mentors who are taking part this year. I think it's a really powerful combination to have this level of experience in the room and also to combine that with the talent and the potential of all the mentees that are here as well. Of course, you'll all bring something new and individual to the table. And it's a <clears throat> it's exciting to consider the work that will be created as a part of this programme this year and also the journey that you're writing will be taking on. But beyond you all as individuals, there's, I think uh, this programme is important for the arts in general in Scotland. And this is something Creative Scotland fully recognises. And we are delighted to support emerging critics. The role of the critic is an, is an important one. The best criticism doesn't only reflect art, it contributes to it. It makes art contemplate itself and it spurs it on. To greater things. <clears throat> I was trying to find some better words to articulate this myself, and as, as is the case quite often, I find somebody else who had said it far, far better than I could. In this case, Mark Cousins. And Mark said that ideally criticism shouldn't be a response to art, it should be art. It's imaginative, bold, big, funny, alive, alert, furious, aesthetic, memorable, quotable, and revealing as the art itself. It's quite a lot of adjectives. <laughs> yeah. well, I think one other important point is that while numerous areas of the critics' role remain the same, there are others that are rapidly developing, uh, mostly as a result of technological change. And this affects many parts of being a critic in the modern age, none more so than where your writing will be published and how readers will engage with it. So that could be on the screen now as often as a printed page. And it could be read in numerous, on numerous devices, in numerous situations, and quite often across the globe. Um, and I know this is partly what Laura is here to speak about today, so we are very lucky to have her contribution. So finally, I won't waste any more precious time because there's lots of very important things to cover today. But I'd just like to offer my best wishes for today and for the programme more generally. Um, and I know quite a few of you already, but... I will look forward to reading the work of everybody and enjoying and learning from it. Thank you. Okay, I, I would say that Alan has undersold himself slightly because he was the, the books editor of The Skinny for how long, Alan? You were there for quite a while, weren't you? Yeah. 
And he also won the inaugural Jan Fairley Award for Emerging Journalists and worked at W Green's Legal Publishers. So he, again, he knows books and criticism from many different perspectives. So thank you for that, Alan. And thank you generally to Creative Scotland for funding the programme and for supporting us through this and partnering with us in the delivery. We should also thank um, Berlin, the publisher today, who are sponsoring the drinks at the end, which is great. So they managed to get their catalogues here for that particular reason. Alan is going to speak next. For those of you who don't know Alan Taylor, he's been a journalist for over 30 years. He was deputy and managing editor at The Scotsman. For the last 15 years, he was writer-at-large for The Sunday Herald. He's contributed to numerous publications over the years, including the Times Literary Supplement, The New Yorker, The Melbourne Age, and edited four acclaimed anthologies, The Assassin's Cloak, The Secret Annex, The Country Diaries, and Glasgow, The Autobiography, all of which take up a huge amount of room on your bookshelf because they're all fat, chunky books. But his most recent book is slightly slimmer, but no less well-selling, and that's Appointment in Arezzo, his friendship with Muriel Spark. And that's doing tremendously well this year. He's also edited the centenary editions of Muriel Sparks' novels, um, which are published by Polygon Berlin. Alan is, to us, the editor of Scottish Review of Books and the very essence of Scottish Review of Books. He was the founding editor. He's been with it for, I won't embarrass you to say how long, Alan, but a tremendously long period of time. So we thank you for your wisdom today and for sharing an insight into the world of uh -huh. Yes, thank you. And he's got toothache. I, I have toothache, actually, yes. Um, well, you're very lucky that I'm not going to be one of the mentors, I have to say. Um, um, I don't think anybody... It's very nice to be here, by the way. Um, it's always nice to be in the National Library. Um, I don't think anybody ever set out to be a critic. Um, I know I certainly didn't. Um, I noticed when you look up definitions of words that uh, the first use of the word critic was in a medical sense. Um, and only latterly, 16th century, it became uh, a term that we kind of recognise today. Um, and I guess myself, I've always thought the first critic must have been a Presbyterian, um, as, as I was. Uh, because you were brought up always sort of judging things and always being judged, you know, good and evil, good and bad, don't do this, don't do that, uh, always being asked to examine things. Um, and so subconsciously, those of us in the Presbyterian sect uh, were being groomed to be critics. But if anybody said to me, you know, at school, that I was going to be a critic or a reviewer, uh, rather than Jimmy Johnson or Willie Henderson or Kenny Dalglish, I would have punched them. Um, and like most things in life, you, be you, you, you become something by default, you know. Um, I suppose the first thing that started to make me a critic was by going into a public library and choosing the books to read that you wanted to read. Um, as Jan said, a lot of this year has been taken up with... Muriel Spark and uh, talking and thinking and writing about Muriel Spark. And Muriel Spark uh, was a critic from the age of 10 or 11. Um, what Muriel Spark used to do, 
She used to go to the local library and borrow books uh, by the romantic poets, Wordsworth, Keats, Byron, you name it, uh, take them home, read them, and then she would try to improve on the poems. Improve on the poems of Wordsworth, improve on the poems of Keats. She was 10, she was 11. That is how you start to become a critic. You look at somebody's lines and you say, well, that could be better. It was like Alan said, that's instinctively said, that's a lot of adjectives. Um, and so that's the kind of way that you start to become a critic because you become more discerning in the way that you read. And it makes it almost impossible, I find now, to almost read anything. Um, I find uh, very difficult to read sort of modern new books because from the start, I start to criticize them line by line. And it pains me sometimes to see how colorless or badly written they are or dull they are, or in the case of the novel, how not novel they are. You know, the key to the word novel is, is the novel should be novel, but the novel isn't novel. It continually repeats itself. Um, and this drives me uh, almost to distraction. Um, however, I sort of be began to be a critic and a writer because um, I was a research librarian um, across the road in the reference library. And while it was a wonderful job and everybody loved you, everybody did love you, um, it was extraordinarily bad paying, being badly paid. It was like being a sort of literary nurse. Um, and so I started to write uh, reviews and journalism. Now, it, it may be a coincidence, but most of these journals and magazines that I wrote for are now defunct. Um, I don't think I can take any responsibility for that, but I seemed to write a piece for them, and then they would die. Um, so there I was in the central library, in the reference department, hiding in the stacks, pretending to weed out uh, obsolete books and books that were past or sell-by date, and write reviews and, and pieces for the newspapers. And I did write for, and I was, I think, the first literary editor of the List magazine. Uh, can you believe that? That just shows how old I am. Um, and then... Uh, I started occasionally to write uh, for The Scotsman. Uh, I had become friendly with Norman McCaig. Um, I hope that name is familiar to you all. Um, well, Norman was an imperious person, uh, around about six foot three, six foot four, with a sort of Roman nose, and known for his scabrous wit. And uh, I decided one day to write a piece about Norman, who I kind of vaguely knew. But I waited. I waited until it was the summer holidays, and I knew that Norman spent his summer holidays up in Loch Inver, far away from newspapers. It's not like today where you can be assured that if you write something, it will go onto the net and it will turn up on somebody's phone almost immediately. But I thought, well, I could write this piece about Norman, and he would never read it. And therefore, you know, I felt relatively safe. Um, so I wrote it, and it duly appeared in the paper. And two or three months later, I was in the pub with him. And I stupidly, I don't know what it was, but I said to him, did you ever read that piece I wrote about you? And he said, yes. My, Rosemary says I sort of, my accent goes between Norman McCaig and Sorley McLean. I can do both, actually. But um, yes, I did. I said, and then I said, Faithfully, and what did you think of it? And Norman gave one of these horrible pauses and he said, 
it was all right, I suppose, as far as it went. And I thought, you know, was that, you know, just escaped. Um, but Norman himself had been a reviewer and he'd written a very bad anti-review of a poet somewhere in the borders. And this person had nearly committed suicide. And Norman had decided at that point he would stop reviewing. And he suggested that I might do the same. Uh, I didn't, I'm afraid. But um, back in those days, uh, I read religiously the book review pages. Um, I don't know if people do read the book review pages as much as they do now. But you know, I read the Observer's pages, and I read the Scotsman's pages um, every weekend. I would never have gone a weekend without reading these pages. And although I didn't know who the reviewers were, I kind of grew familiar with them. Um, it's a wonderful thing, actually, to see a reviewer on a page, recognise the name, and sort of discern what their taste is and what they're like. Um, it has been said to me on more than one occasion that people have bought books basically on the, the basis that I either liked them or disliked them. Um, an MP once said to me that he'd gone out expressly that morning to buy a book that I'd just panned because he knew he'd love it. Um, but I, I used to read the reviews of people like Robert Nye and uh, Alan Bold, Alan Massey uh, in The Scotsman and be impressed by them because I would go and get the books and then I would form my own opinion of them. And I was also intrigued by somebody like Alan Massey who... Um, is still with us and is, still writes for the Scottish Review Books, still writes for the, the Scotsman. And Alan, for example, never reviewed... He's reviewing fiction mainly. He never reviewed uh, what you might call postmodern fiction or the American fictions or the magical realists. He had, he had a stream of stuff that he himself would review, and you either liked it or you didn't like it. And by and large, I liked his reviews, I liked his plain speaking, I liked the common sense that he spoke, and in general, when he recommended something, you knew it was worth it. And he wrote a review uh, back in the 1970s, 1973, of a book that made a huge impression on me. Uh, the book was uh, Alan Spencer's short stories, It's Colours, They Are Fine. And uh, Alan Massey gave it an absolute rave review uh, he called it uh, the Scottish equivalent of uh, James Joyce's The Dubliners. Um, he was kind of heralding uh, uh, the sort of emergence of a new talent, but of a new way of writing. Scottish fiction at that point had been pretty traditional and by and large in the doldrums. Many people put the modern age of Scottish fiction down to the publication of Alistair Gray's Lanark in 1981. It didn't. It came with a publication of Alan Spencer's short stories, I think in 1973, of its colours they are fine. And the impact of Alan's review, of course, made me go and read Alan Spencer's book, and it was totally vindicated what Alan Massey had said. And I suddenly realised that, you know, a reviewer can have a big impact on the culture of a country and the way it goes. Um, anyway, let me just have some water. Um, eventually... I uh, started to write for the Scotsman um, and become a reviewer for them. This was completely fortuitous, and all these things do happen because of connections. You need to be or put yourself in a particular place where things might happen. Who knows if they will happen, but you need to put yourself 
into a particular place where things will happen. And I put myself in the Jingle and Geordie one night. It was a pub. Uh, I, I don't want you to um, sort of imagine that, that I was standing at the bar waiting for something to happen, but it was kind of almost like that. And into the pub came uh, the Scotsman's Features editor, um, a, a chap called Jim Seaton, uh, another one of these two tall people. You know, as Martin Avis said, that there are people who are tall beyond utility, and, and, and Jim was one of them. And, and uh, he and I got talking, and he said to me that uh, his paperback reviewer had been taken ill and was in hospital. And he said with some glee, he, and he's unlikely to come out. And I said, oh, that's a bit sad. And he said, yeah, he said, how would you like to review paperbacks for the Scotsman? And I said, well, I'd love to do that. And we finished our drinks. I went back into the Scotsman. And he said, there are some plastic bags. Fill the bags with as many uh, paperbacks as you like. And let me have 10 reviews, each of 100 words, in a couple of weeks' time. I tell you, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And as he, I was walking out the door, he shouted, and we'll pay you for it. <laughs> so I was getting all the books I could possibly carry, and I was going to be paid for it. And I very carefully read all these books, not all the books, but 10 books for publication, and I made sure each review was 100 words, as Jim had told me it should be. I counted the words, because you didn't have word counts in these damn days. So everyone was 100 words. I you know, took him literally and delivered it on time. And that was the beginning of, of what sort of amounts to a career. Now, it was a very closed world in those days, um, the world of book reviewing. Uh, you were expected, first of all, to review across the gamut of publications. You know, George Orwell tells you in that famous essay on book reviewing about... The, the strange books that would be sent through the post to you to review. They could go everything from gardening to astrophysics and occasionally might touch vaguely on something you knew about. But you were supposed to make some sense of this and review all these, all these books. But um, I, I reviewed for the Scotsman for quite a while and uh, gradually graduated from writing just paperback reviews to longer reviews and to essay reviews and to interviews and all the rest of it. And uh, remarkably... Um, was then poached. You can imagine this, poached. It was like Manchester United buying me. Um, uh, poached by the Herald, um, by a, a chap called Harry Reid at the Herald. And, um, you know, that, that, that in itself was a sort of traumatic thing. It was like moving from east to west, and you were going to be talking a completely different language. Um, Harry uh, famously says... I entered the Regano bar uh, to have lunch with Harry to discuss what books I might review. Harry shouted to the barman, two pints of lager and let's have a look at your wine list. And I thought, well, these guys are serious. You know, these, um, later on, I had a literary editor at the Herald who actually knocked somebody out with a punch while he and I were talking together. Um, uh, the reviewers uh, at the Herald in those days, uh, because the literary editor was an extraordinarily lazy guy, uh, just decided that there would be three people who would review most of the books. Um, and those three people were myself, Alan Bold, and Douglas Dunn, the poet. Um, and so we reviewed most of the books. Everything that came out, we reviewed them. And 
how did I review them? What did I think about them? How did I approach the job? Um, well, I took it pretty seriously, I have to say. Uh, I read all the books for a start. Um, I thought at first, too, that I should become familiar with uh, the sort of trends in literary criticism. I don't know if people do these things nowadays, but uh, I had kind of largely eschewed what you might call a formal education, but um, I read things like, uh, well, what did I read? Um, Leavis's great tradition, Wayne Booth's The Rhetoric of Fiction, Eric Auerbach's Mimesis, Walter Allen's The English Novel, E.M. Foster's Aspects of the Novel. I read all of these things, thinking, you know, I would need to know about this before I started to review for the pages. Read many more than those things. But um, in a way, they were kind of useless. They were, they were helpful. They were interesting books. Um, I think, again, as Alan said earlier, um, I, I kind of regarded... Uh, criticism on the same level of any other literary form. You know, I regarded it as high a form as poetry or as writing novels, um, especially most of the novels that I was reading, plays, whatever. I thought it was a form in its own right. Um, I read and read again recently uh, John Dover Wilson's uh, What Happens in Hamlet. I much more recommend it than Hamlet itself. You know, forget Shakespeare, read Dover Wilson on Hamlet. Um, I read uh, other great critics, of course, Pauline Kael, already mentioned, Arlene Croce on Dance in The New Yorker, um, uh, uh, Kenneth Tynan on Theatre. They were thrilling people to read because they could make or break careers, but at the same time, they were passionate about what they were writing about. They cared about the arts that they were writing about. It mattered. It wasn't just some kind of piece of frippery. It, it was a sort of driving force in their life. It meant something to question the worth of something and to give your opinion for it and to stand up for your opinion. But the most important book, I guess, I read at that point was a, a little book um, that uh, Anthony Burgess wrote. Anthony Burgess at this point uh, was the Observer's chief literary critic. Uh, he had been the literary critic at, at the uh, Yorkshire Post, where he famously reviewed one of his own books. I think he panned it. Um, but he said also that he'd uh, read, in two years of reviewing for the Yorkshire Post, he'd read 350 books. Anyway, he published a book um, which was called the best 99 novels in English since 1950. And I read every one of those novels. I read every one of those novels. I went to the bookshop and I bought them and I read every one of those novels. Um, and that's the kind of thing I recommend anybody does. That uh, whether, whether you're writing about art or theater or dance or music or whatever, Find out about the history and the background to what you're doing. Don't come at something new as if there are no foundations. You have to find out what the foundations actually are. And I looked at Burgess's 99 novels. I'll happily give anybody a copy of it if they want to spend the next year reading 99 novels. And I'm horrified by how quixotic and wrong his choices are. Um, there's no Beryl Bainbridge. There's three novels by Aldous Huxley. 
There's Norman Mailer's unreadable Ancient Evenings. He has two novels by Muriel Spark, but not the prime Miss Jean Bordie. He ignores John Updike's Rabbit Tetralogy, and he includes The Coup. But at the same time as one might kind of knock it, it's kind of wonderful to see this list of 99 novels, many by people I hadn't read at that particular time, and read them and suddenly think, yeah, I'm now kind of getting up to speed. You know, Chinua Shebe, uh, Ralph Allison, Robertson Davies, uh, lots of Olivia Manning, Brian Moore, on and on it goes. You could have a wonderful year or two years reading these 99 novels, and it will give you a good picture of where the novel was in the second half of the last century. Um, again, famously, uh, he, he picked out, um, I think what the only modern, really, Scottish novel was Lanark. And that in itself is chastening for those of us who keep slapping ourselves on the back about how great Scottish fiction is, that up to 1981, apart from Muriel's part, the only person he could tap on the back was Alistair Gray's Lanark. You know, this was not a sort of very cultivated field that we had. And I would argue still that it's something we've got to discuss and argue about as we keep thinking we're in a, a great position. When we've won the Booker Prize once, we've never won the Nobel Prize. Um, uh, how great can we possibly be if we're not up with those kind of things? Um, but the kind of writers I really like to read, um, the critics I like to read, were mainly uh, practicing uh, novelists. Um, there, were, there were the people who uh, did the job, did the day job, but were prepared, like Alan Massey, to stick up for what they believed and put it down on paper. Um, I don't know if this happens so much in the other arts. I don't think, for example, you read many artists writing about painting or sculpture, or I can't remember the last time I read a great uh, movie actor writing about the movies in any kind of meaningful way. Um, uh, I can't, occasionally you get actors, I guess, in, in the theatre doing it, uh, people like Anthony Sher, etc. But it's, it's mainly a sort of literary thing. And uh, the one I liked best at, at that point, and still do, is uh, John Updike. I don't know if you know John Updike's work um, as a critic. He, he published about four or five volumes, each of about a thousand pages. Uh, and these were the reviews and occasional pieces that he'd written, mainly for The New Yorker, but for, for other magazines. And he was a kind of quintessential freelance writer. John Updike was John Updike, one of the most celebrated writers on the planet. But as far as I can tell, when somebody rang him to ask him if he'd like to do a piece of work, he always said yes. He always said yes. I personally can never understand it, why somebody says no. But I can understand it if somebody's going to say, well, would you do this for nothing? But if somebody's going to pay you to do something and you can reasonably do it, you should do it. And you should stay up all night to do it. You, sh you shouldn't sort of say, oh, I've got a job and it's 9 till 5 and really I'm pretty full up till 5 o'clock and that's it. Somebody like Alan Massey actually writes journalism until the phones stop ringing and then he can start writing fiction. 
because at that point he knows the newspapers have going to, gone to bed and nobody can ask him to do anything else, so he can get back to doing what he does probably best. Anyway, John Updike in his uh, collection, the introduction to his collection, says that writing criticism is to writing fiction and poetry as hugging the shore is to sailing in the open sea. At sea, we have that beautiful blankness all around, a cold, bright wind, and the occasional thrill of a gleaming dolphin back or the synchronised leap of silverfish. Hugging the shore, one can always come about and draw even closer to land with another nine-point quotation. Book reviews perform a clear and desired social service. They excuse us from reading the books themselves. They give us literary sensations in concentrated form. They are a higher sort of gossip. They are as intense as television commercial, commercials and as jolly as candy bars. I myself usually turn to the book reviews in a magazine or a newspaper just after the cartoon or the sports section, and I want them to be well done. That must be why I began to do them myself in 1960. He was slightly disingenuous, by the way, because he discovered that writing book reviews monthly for The New Yorker uh, paid almost exactly his alimony bills to his first wife. Um, it's a good place to write for The New Yorker. They uh, pay you a dollar a word. Even now they pay you a dollar a word. So do not turn down The New Yorker when they phone. I, I should say here, there is, in the kind of context of Scotland um, and writing criticism in a small country, this is highly dangerous. Um, People don't like to be criticised, I've discovered. Um, they can be extraordinarily touchy and sensitive about it. Um, you know, when, when we were at the list, it, uh, it was not unusual for rock bands to turn up at the door wanting to beat up the rock critic who'd uh, just panned their latest album or concert. Um, there was a famous case of uh, Jeanette Winterson arriving at the door of a reviewer who'd given her a bad review and she wanted to punch her lights out. Um, I've never had that feeling, but you know, you walk into a room now and then and you can just feel the temperature drop quite considerably. Um, there are very few of the main Scottish writers uh, who I haven't given bad reviews to. Um, Andrew, I've never uh, said anything about you, honestly. <laughs> um, but, um, and sometimes I kind of regret it. You know, I, I think, you know, why did I do that? You know, um, uh, Ian Rankin, who's a friend of mine, you know, why did I do that? Um, Christopher Brookmeyer, who'll never be a friend of mine. Um, J.K. Rowling, who has a tin ear. Um, A.L. Kennedy, who writes the same thing all the time. Oh, God. Um, you know, there's so many of them. Uh, there's so many of them, actually. Some published by Jan. Um, but you have to be sincere to yourself. You, you, you know, you have to be reasonably judicious. You have to know that you are, that this is going to hurt somebody. You know, it's all very well for people to say that they don't read reviews. That's a total lie. They read them eventually, or they see them. They can't help but see them. And always reviewers say stupid things. And you'll, you'll never satisfy uh, the writer or the artist or the dancer or the musician, you'll never satisfy them. Even if you praise them, you'll never satisfy them because you'll praise them for the wrong damn thing, not what they want. Um, so you're not writing for them. You're writing almost for a kind of witch report on the arts. 
You're, you're saying to the public out there, this is what I think, now you go and see what you think and argue with me if you like. I always loved it when the letter pages were full of uh, aggrieved artists or audience members saying, that so-and-so was at the same play as I was and yet he hated it. How could he do that? Everybody was up on their seats yelling and dancing and shouting and all the rest of it. And always, by and large, the reviewer was right. But, you know, what can you do? Um, audiences are ignorant. But um, I think most of these people, I, you know, I gave bad reviews to, have, uh, have got over it. You know, I, I certainly have. You know, I, I don't, you know, I don't hold anything against them. Um, Ian Rankin, uh, you know, after I gave a, a novel of his a bad review, his next killer was a librarian based in the library across there. He was a psychopath, you know? And... Um, you know, I, I thought that was harsh, but you know, I've never been a psychopath, and I was never a children's librarian. But you know, he could take his revenge. Um, a few little tips, because uh, I think the time is cracking on. Um, you, you know, it's very useful to be able to whatever sphere you're in uh, to write for, so that people understand it. Um, you don't need to be brought up as our generation was. Um, in the innards of grammar but uh, I recommend everybody has a copy by their side of Strunk and White's Elements of Style uh, you can buy it for about a pound or less on the internet, it's beautifully written, it's very witty and it will tell you the difference between that and which um, it's worth it for that alone um, uh, read it indiscriminately uh, read you know, until your eyes weep um, nothing ever goes to waste. I talked about the uh, Anthony Burgess 99 novels. But the other way of old was just to go through particular sections of the library and just read them all. Just read all the books. Just take each one as it comes. Read it, one after another. Um, you'll be amazed by uh, what you can get through. Uh, you need to trust your own opinion, but be ready to justify it. Um, and this is the, the great difficult thing. I find that lots of people have opinions. Um, the internet is full of people with opinions. Uh, it's their justification of these opinions that is a big problem. And, you know, you need to base certain things on experience. As I say, in the case of the novel, people write novels these days that they think are novel. They're completely old hat and have been done many, many times before. But because reviewers or critics actually haven't read anything, they don't spot that. They don't know that. They wouldn't know if somebody was just copying, you know, novels from somebody else and sending them out into the world. There's a great, lovely, very funny novel by Anthony Pohl who wrote The Dance, The Music of Time. Uh, novel's called What's Become of Wearing. Uh, it's a very funny book. Um, it's about uh, a travel writer called Wearing who has become a bestseller in Britain. And yet this person is mysterious. He never appears anywhere. He doesn't do any interviews. Um, but every year a new book arrives and the publishers publish it and it becomes a bestseller. Uh, it turns out that he's sort of hiding in France, going into French public libraries, taking French travel books out, translating them into English and sending them off to his publisher. But because nobody had read any French travel books, they didn't know that he was doing this. They didn't know it was plagiarism. So the more you read, the better. Um, as Rosemary says, uh, stick to deadlines. 
deadlines, deadlines, deadlines. Everybody thinks that deadlines are the most difficult thing uh, to observe and the bane of everybody's life. In fact, deadlines are beautiful things. Deadlines are the sort of guiding principle of all journalism. You do what you can within that deadline. If I asked you to write 800 words in the next hour, you would write 800 words in the next hour. If you were in a newspaper and somebody asked you to write 800 words in the next hour and you didn't do it, woe betide you. You could only do what you can do. So when you understand that, then it becomes much more simple. You can't write Ulysses in, in an hour. Write, write what you can in that, that time, but don't miss the deadline. Observe word counts. Somebody asks for 800 words, don't give them 1,600 words. You know, value your own words. Uh, follow the house style of publications. Nobody seems to read the publications they're asked to write for. See what, see what the publications themselves are like. See what the style's like. See what the tone's like. Um, that's very important. The first thing I would have done when I was writing for a magazine or a publication I didn't uh, know or hadn't written for before, I'd go back and read several issues just to get some kind of feel for it. Uh, you know, the tone of the New Statesman is totally different from the tone of the Spectator. Totally different. Um, you know, the, the Spectator's got a nice whimsical, who cares sort of style. The New Statesman has an earnestness um, that sometimes makes it off-putting. Uh, the first key thing in all journalism is you, you have to write entertainingly. You know, forget worthiness. You know, detoxify yourselves of academia. Um, it's like, you know, you need to go to a car wash and sort of have somebody spray all this kind of academic nonsense out of you. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult, but um, avoiding jargon, uh, the academic ease, it's really, it's, 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 it's pernicious. It's, 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 it's not helping society. When people write for a kind of closed society, um, the discourse is, is altered. Uh, you should always quote judiciously. You, all, you should always be quoting. If you're reviewing, uh, whether it's a theatre or uh, a, a novel or biography, always quote judiciously. It's always easy to find a bad sentence, but you know, if it's a bad sentence, it has to be indicative of a kind of trend within a trend. Um, I also like this uh, advice from Martin Amos as well. Um, Martin Amos's book, Experience, is well worth reading. Um, his, it's a sort of autobiography of sorts. Um, and it's got a lot of good advice about reviewing in there. Uh, back in the day, Martin Amos used to write uh, for what they called the back of the book at the New Statesman. And he knew that the back of the book was where everybody turned to first. The book's pages were always the place that people turned to first who wanted to know what the culture was doing. They were the heart and soul of a paper. They were kind of, it's sort of intellectual heartbeat. But Martin Amos has this, he says, never start consecutive paragraphs with the same word unless you begin at least three paragraphs in this way and the reader can tell you that you're doing it on purpose. It's so sensible. Yeah. And, it, and, and as he says, it looks ugly, isn't it? It looks ugly. Look at it on the page. You start it with I and then another I. You think, no, that's not right. But if you do it three times or four times, you think, ah, it's deliberate. It's a stylistic tick. It might be okay. Yeah. So you need to look out for those kind of uglifications. Um, I suppose I should say a few words just about the Scottish Review books and, and, and why it exists. Uh, one of the reasons it exists was that we could see that this kind of much vaunted Scottish reputation for 
reviewing and criticism uh, was beginning to be diluted. You know, back in the day, the Scotch reviewers were as feared as the border reavers. You know, to get a review from one of those Scotch guys, you know, was to be eviscerated in print. And, uh, you know, the, the, the romantic poets were terrified of the Scotch reviewers who would lay into them. And something has happened here. I think it worries me that people are too nice. Um, I am not nice. Um, and I don't really like people who are nice. You know, um, I like kind people, but this kind of niceness is, is, it seems to be hypocritical. It seems to be disingenuous that people have plenty of anti-views. But where are they expressing them? They can express them at the end of articles on the internet, uh, on these kind of comment pages where... It's so funny. I, I, it's a bit like thought for the day, you know, where you get this kind of nice little softening up paragraph or two, and then suddenly Jesus is going to enter into it at some point, you know. <laughs> I was at Anfield last night watching Liverpool play such and such, and just amazingly, I see that Roma had a player called Jesus playing for them. Well, that puts me in mind of another Jesus, and off they go, yeah? And you think, oh, no, don't do that. Um, so, <laughs> what can you say? I, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it does want me, make me want to throw up, but um, I, those kind of great reviewers did actually contribute to something. They, they, they said, look, we're, we're, we're talking common sense here. You know, we are, we are from a society that is intellectually serious. It does matter whether you get things right. It does matter whether you can write well. It does matter if you're saying something original. All of these things you need to care about. They're not just some kind of entertainment or fancy. They really do matter in the great kind of scheme of things. Um, because eventually, when you learn how to criticise a novel or a poem or a play or a film or a piece of music, you know, um, you learn how to criticise politicians and things that are going on in society, and you learn how to express yourselves. I can remember most of my teenage years were arguing about rock and roll and who, who was cool and who wasn't cool and who mattered and who didn't matter. I nearly had an argument the other day there with a guy who, where was it now? Yes, it was on the Edinburgh to Tweed Bank train and I was sitting opposite this guy and he was a very nice man, he was a bird watcher and he'd been up in Edinburgh, he was 70 uh, he told me he just had his birthday and he had a little bag, a uh, polythene bag from FOP, you know, and it's a certain age of person who goes into FOP. It's, it's where I see Ian Rankin most. Uh, I, and this guy, and I said, so what have you got there in the bag? And he produced out of this bag an album by, this is going to fall on deaf ears, Uriah Heep. And I said, ye gods, I said, what are you doing with that? He said, oh, they are a fantastic band. I said, no, they're not, they're bloody awful. And so for 20 minutes, I had a huge argument with this guy about Uriah Heep, and I heard my saying things like Jethro Tull and 10 years after, and, you know, soft machine. And, and I thought, yeah, but I remember arguing about all this 
And arguing about Dylan's lyrics and Cohen's lyrics and is Cohen a better poet than Dylan or is Tom Waits a better poet than both of them put together, you know, and is Van Morrison's Astral Weeks the best? These things mattered. People were very passionate about them and I hope people still are passionate about them. But we have the Scottish Review book so that it can some way restore the kind of great art of the essay review uh, back to Scotland. And, you know, the, the faith has to be in, in a younger generation or new voices because I think, you know, I've had enough of it, frankly. Um, and I think I would rather read some new people saying different things that point out some stuff that uh, might make me sit up and take notice. Anyway, um, I'm going to just read this little line from a guy called Al Alvarez. Um, I don't know if you know about Al Alvarez. Uh, he was a very uh, well-known critic and poet in his day. Um, he was a great friend of Sylvia Plath. And uh, Al Alvarez uh, was the poetry reviewer, editor of The Observer. Uh, and he uh, produced very good anthologies. Anthologies are a good way of telling people what's going on or putting things in a canon or into a context that makes sense of them in the general scheme of things. And uh, Al Alvarez uh, wrote very well about fiction, poetry, among other things. He wrote about rock climbing and suicide and oil rigs and stuff like that. He was a very interesting guy. Uh, he's a great gambler. Um, would spend, you know, nights losing 10, 20, 30,000 uh, pounds at a time uh, trying to reclaim his earlier losses. But anyway, this is what he had to say about uh, criticism and reviewing, etc. He said, I sometimes feel about my profession much the same way as Vladimir Mayakovsky felt about suicide. I do not recommend it to others, he wrote, then put a gun to his head. Hard to imagine somebody actually saying something that witty just before he shot himself, but nevertheless, this is what criticism is arguing with somebody you've thought you might recommend a quote from. Freelance writing is a precarious trade, not least because shifting from one literary form to another may mean you end up mastering none. But for a writer, even precariousness has its uses. If nothing else, it makes you constantly alert to the way your voice comes off the page. The art of poetry is altogether different from that of prose, just as writing fiction is different from writing non-fiction, and literary criticism is different from them all. Fifty years of writing for a living have taught me that there is only one thing the four disciplines have in common. In order to write well, you must first learn how to listen, and that, in turn, is something writers have in com common with their readers. Reading well means opening your ears to the presence behind the words and knowing which notes are true and which are false. It is as much an art as writing well and almost as hard to acquire. I think that's very true. Anyway, the final thing to say is that being critics, being reviewers, um, your circle of friends will be vastly diminished, but you might feel better about yourselves. Thank you.
Thanks, Kenny. Um, I want to just ask you, Ellen, about your kind of conclusion there and the fact that as you were speaking, a lot of the um, reviewers that you, just your comment that it was a closed shop in the past yes. and that lots of the reviewers that you mentioned were men yes. and lots of men who knew each other. Yes. Um, and then when we received the entries for this round of emerging critics, it was... By, by a vast majority, it was mostly women. Hallelujah. Um, <laughs> and also the kind of, I suppose, the democracy of geography that happens with the internet so that you don't have to be in London or in the Central Belt or whatever to be a critic in the modern age. How far do you think that that kind of changing profile is changing what is reviewed and is changing what is critically well-received and potentially what is published? Yeah, well, I mean, these are big questions, really. Um, I mean, obviously, things are changing. The, the, the whole kind of patriarchal, critical thing is uh, somehow evaporating or dissolving. Um, you know, that's, when I say there were these men writing all these things, um, there were a few women, but there weren't many. Um, the, the, the Scotsman, for example, would have um, Isabel Murray uh, reviewing from time to time Scottish fiction. She would review Scottish fiction because quite often the others didn't want to do that. They, 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 they were, you know, watching out for their chums, probably. Um, but they were few and far between. Um, and to a degree in the general press publications, even the Scottish Review of Books, not just even the Scottish Review of Books, uh, there's a paucity of women writing uh, reviews. Um, I got my latest copy of the London Review of Books the other day there, out of 15, 16, 17 contributors, I think three were women. Um, now, you know, I have theories about why that is the case, but um, it is the case. Um, and uh, it is, it, people might not be putting themselves forward. Um, the reviews editors might not uh, be in contact with people who want to write these kind of things. I don't know. But I don't think it's a male-female thing in terms of the editors because the... London Review of Books editor is a woman and the owner, um, and her, many of her staff are women. So uh, I can't imagine she is barring the gate for them to come through. Uh, the internet has completely democratised things because people can um, write what they want, where they want. Um, it's how do they get sufficient uh, editing, I think, is a problem, and also how do they get uh, people's attention? Because... <laughs> It's, it's, it's incredibly difficult to keep up with things. And uh, how, do you, how do you do that? And Laura, I'm sure, will have thoughts about this. But uh, w one of the things I had kind of hopes and still hope for in the internet is that in America, for example, it's quite normal for egotistical, mainly men, to set up their own magazines and publications and websites and blogs and all the rest of it and charge for it. You know, it's quite, quite normal for somebody to have a monthly publication named after themselves and have somebody fund it and edit it and write it in a way that they would want. I mean, look at something like uh, Lewis Lappin's Quarterly or something like that, you know. Uh, uh, there's that guy, Andrew, whatever, what's his name? Andrew, Andrew Sullivan. There's lots, but there was many more like that, and they operate in all kinds of different fields. And, you know, I kind of hoped, and I still hope, that the, that the internet will throw up people who will do those kind of things, and then people will either help crowdfund it or pay small subscriptions towards it or start their own thing. 
And, and the other thing is, you know, it's slightly dismaying that such things change. But how old is the list? 30 years, 35, List magazine. But I remember when that started, you know, it started very confidently with a few people who had a kind of a raison d'etre for starting a magazine. And I still keep hoping that people will start their own thing, do their own thing, and then just gather a readership from somewhere. And it can, it can be anything. It could just be, you know, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll just review stuff over the course of a month and it will be 32 pages and you can read it or not read it. It could be women's fiction. It could be, you know, it could be devoted to popular fiction. It could be bloody, bloody Sunday, you know. Um, but at the moment, I haven't really seen any great evidence of it. I haven't. And... Uh, it's interesting that people talk about the demise of newspapers and stuff like this, but actually, since um, I started writing for newspapers, newspapers have increased in Scotland. There's, there's the Sunday Herald, there's uh, Scotland on Sunday, there's the National. These papers didn't exist when I started uh, writing for for newspapers. So there's actually more newspapers now than there was then. But everybody says this is a dying industry. Everybody quotes the newspaper reviews. They don't quote individual uh, websites and stuff like this that exist only on the web. So it hasn't, it hasn't reached that level of maturity. And I think it's, the other thing is to say briefly is that it's very difficult to keep a website going because they are totally insatiable. Um, they, they, you know, because the space is infinite, the temptation is to keep trying to fill it. Anybody got any questions? Um, I was intrigued by what you were saying about the kind of creeping trend for too much niceness and criticism. Um, Maybe you're not that nice, Alan. <laughs> deep down. Um, I I was just wondering why you think that might be happening. I mean, is it because we're a small culture and everyone's trying to support each other um, and people start sort of reviewing their pals and things like that? Or, or do you think it's possibly because of the comeback you might get on social media in comment sections and things like that? Well, well I mean, you know, well, you know writing for the theatre is that when... Um, a Scottish play is reviewed by Scottish reviewers, it gets a generally warmer review than it gets by reviewers from London. Uh, you know, I don't know why that's the case, but that does seem to indicate that there is some kind of softening towards the people on your doorstep. And I guess the same is generally true about the area I'm interested in, fiction and books, that we are generally more receptive than people elsewhere. You know, for example, somebody like... Um, Jim Kelman, who you know I would put as probably the greatest living Scottish novelist, one could argue about that. But you know, is that accepted beyond these shores, and what does that matter? Um, but I think that there's a natural reticence here about upsetting people. You know, it is alarming how often you bump into people, uh, uh, you know, and it, and it happens just when you're hoping it won't. You know, you walk. I've long since stopped going to any receptions. Uh, um, I mean, really, I have. It's, uh, <laughs> anyway, I... I, I um, but but um, I, I, I think there is a... I think, I think there's a general trend that people are nicer than they used to be. Um, that there's a great case of... Um, 
Trevor Royal. Uh, Trevor used to be um, Jenny's predecessor as the literature director of the Arts Council, but Trevor was also a writer, as is a writer, and um, he, had, he got a bad review from somebody for one of his books, and he was in the pub one day with Alan Bold, and for reasons which we won't go into here, Bold had a minder, a chap called Arthur, and Arthur was a big bloke who went around beating other big blokes up. And he heard that Trevor had had a bad review, and Arthur said to Trevor, have you got this guy's address? <laughs> and go around and beat him up. Writers would regularly fight with one another. Uh, when, when, when they reopened Milne's Bar and you know, painted the walls a very healthy nicotine colour to, to give it the look as if it had been smoked in all these years, on the first morning of the reopening at the launch, two writers were barred from life, from the bar, because they were on the floor wrestling fighting. I myself went for the, to the Times Educational Supplement to review the Paisley Writers' Weekend. And I left as uh, Tom Leonard and Tom McGrath were wrestling on the stage together. <laughs> I don't know what they were about, but they weren't nice. And we actually know, by the way, that writers aren't nice. It's a sweeping statement, isn't it? <laughs> well, I won't go into particular instances this year, maybe. Um, this is probably quite a basic question, but you mentioned kind of being able to be flexible and adapt tone for different publications. I wondered if you had any advice uh, for balancing that out with still creating your own recognisable voice so that when people read one of your reviews, whether it be in one publication or another, they still recognise that as your own work? That's a great question. Uh, the first thing to do then is uh, to read Al Alvarez's book. It's called The Writer's Voice. It will tell you how to retain your voice. Yeah, But, um, you know, what we're talking about here is, is sort of journalism, um, and you know you need in that and if you want to not write for one publication Alvarez was writing mainly for the Observer so he didn't have to worry about writing for lots and lots of different publications that have a different um, determination uh, but if you want to write for lots and lots as you would have to do to make some kind of semblance of a living you need to be able to adapt your voice from one type to another um, it's, just, it's just a question of kind of ventriloquism, that. It's actually quite easy. Um, you know, sometimes it, it, it's, it's so simple. Um, it, 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 so in the case of tabloids, right? So you imagine you're writing for the August Times. Well, look at the way the tabloids do it. They make a sentence per paragraph. Chop everything up, give them a sentence per paragraph, and don't give them any words the sub-editors on the daily record don't understand. I mean, that's going to be difficult, but, you know, it's, it's well possible. Um, so you can, you know, in the last month or so, I think I've written for about five different publications. And, you know, there's, there'll be subtle shifts in how I've written for each of these publications. Um, you know, I write an obituary for the Times, or, or, or uh, column for the Times Literary Supplement, column for the Literary Review, you know, they all are slightly different. Um, one wants it to be more serious, one wants it to be more anecdotal, one wants it to be jokier. Um, so you just need to read them and you'll see. You don't need to, 
you don't need to perjure yourself. You just need to sort of read them. So in our next session, Alan and Laura are going to have a conversation and then there's again a chance for questions at the end. So I just wanted to introduce Laura properly. I'd said to you that she has many different perspectives on books, writing and all things publishing, which I think is probably true, Laura, would, yeah. you, would you say? So Laura's a publisher based in Glasgow. She's also a critic and has written for the Times Literary Supplement, The Guardian, Glasgow Review of Books... Gutter, you're on the board for, for Gutter now, which is now a cooperatively owned magazine, is that right? It is a cooperatively owned magazine, I'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, mm. um, you've also written for Review 31 and SRB and a variety of others, mm. I think that's fair to say. And you're also a writer of fiction and narrative non-fiction yourself and a public speaker on all things publishing. Apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> so we can all benefit from... Laura's experience and knowledge, and hopefully Alan will drag every last detail out of you today, Laura, in the nicest possible way, because he's a nice man, really. He hides it well, but he's a nice man, really. Yeah. Isn't he, Rosemary? <laughs> Over to you. Shall we? Yeah. Well, it is, uh, well, welcome to Edinburgh, Laura. How does it feel to be in civilization? No, no. <laughs> no, um, I mean... How do you sort of juggle all these roles? I mean, do you not find there's a sort of conflict of interest when you're writing and publishing and magazine editing and stuff? I think this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently and um, actually hearing myself introduced like that does give me a little bit of a, a crisis of personality because it does sometimes make me wonder, am I doing too many things? It's... Um, true in one sense to say that I have a portfolio career but I do have a day job I work in publishing I'm a publisher at HarperCollins and I publish uh, dictionaries and atlases I do um, work with companies such as National Geographic publishing non-fiction books and um, that's a job with um, a significant amount of pressure and I put a lot of hours into that not just my contracted ones but on top of that is really when I fit in things like reviewing it was quite interesting to hear you um, speak about uh, seizing the opportunity to review or if someone asks you to file copy within a certain amount of time that you should seize that well I've found that because I, I have a day job I uh, do fit in the review that I do and the other kinds of writing around that job and sometimes that's been quite difficult so when I was first given the opportunity to write for um, it was the Independent and it wasn't review at all it was um, political commentary which I, I actually have given up doing I've realised it's not what I want to write a few years ago I wrote it at lunchtime on my, my lunch break in a previous job and when I've had other pitches accepted, um, when I was first asked to write for The Guardian about Margaret Atwood, I uh, took a day off work. I spent the whole day reading a book that I hadn't yet read so I could get the copy in on time. And that's quite difficult, really, to fit in um, around a full-time job, but I feel that I couldn't have it any other way at the mm. moment. But I do sometimes wonder if there could be a conflict. And one of the things about this niceness is and how that's changed over time, which you mentioned earlier. I wonder if more people nowadays are taking on portfolio careers instead of finding a job that they will stay in for a very long period of time. There are a number of um, arts positions that are part-time. People will supplement their work with freelance. Oh. I wonder if that 
changing type of working is bringing the community together in a way that makes it slightly more difficult mm -hmm. for people who also write criticism to stick the knife into their uh, enemies. <laughs> well, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't really want people necessarily to stick the knife into them. I, I would like people to be honest, mm. I guess, and candid. Um, but, you know, there were, they were nice people mm. in the past. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they also had another side to them that, you know, Graham Greene always talked about having this sort of splinter of ice in your heart. Um, and, you know, he was talking about novelists. Mm. But um, I think the same needs to be true of critics. And um, because when you, when you consistently say nice things about people, people just switch off. Mm. And they have no way of knowing whether you think something is good or bad or why you think something is good or bad. So that when you suddenly say something is absolutely wonderful and right on the money, you, you, you sit up and you say, my goodness, when, when Kenneth Tynan famously said, you know, I don't think I could love anyone who didn't love look back in anger. You know, that was a great sentence. But at the same time, you think, wow, what the hell is he talking about? You know, how good is this? Mm -hmm. But if you've got this kind of constant blather of stuff mm -hmm. that, that is generally nice and full of wonderful adjectives and everybody thinks there's at least six new geniuses published every week, mm. it doesn't mean anything, you know. I, um, I know a reviewer in a particular paper who reviews art never gives anything other than four stars to art exhibitions. So now I've thought, well, you know, they're, they're just on the cusp of genius, all these artists we've got in Scotland. Mm. We've got wonderful artists all over Scotland, right? And, and so I, I, that's why I'm, I have a problem with it. But mm. maybe it's just a perception I have. Maybe people aren't as nice, mm. are they? I don't know. I think... Some publishers also make the mistake of writing a blurb which says this is a stunning work, this is a tour de force, naming no publisher names. But I think um, sometimes that also has the effect of dulling what people are um, able to find because everything is described as wonderful without really getting to the grain of what that thing happens to be. And I found that quite dull as a reader sometimes. But I think recently um, there was a... A famous actor who published a book and it's some postmodernist mess. I've forgotten what his name is. Uh, Sean Penn's book. Sean yeah. Penn's book, yeah. And yeah, it sounds absolutely <laughs> it's completely terrible. And I think recently there have been a few scathing reviews, and the argument has been made that oh, should there be space given to terrible reviews if space for arts coverage is declining generally? And I think that would be a terrible shame. Now, if you're reviewing mediocre works and saying, actually, this isn't bo worth bothering reading and there's not very much interesting to say about it, I think that is particularly, um, mm -hmm. perhaps not worth space. But if you're finding something that is being given a, a bit of cultural space and you're reviewing it and it happens to be terrible, I think it would be a shame to lose that, mm -hmm. in a sense. What do you think about that? Well, I wonder how much art space is being reduced. That's mm. the first thing. Um, you know, as I say, there are at least three newspapers now existing in Scotland that didn't exist before, and to some degree, they give coverage mm. of the arts. It might not be very good coverage, but they give coverage of the arts. Um, something like the Scottish Review of Books didn't exist 
before it exists now. The internet is alive with stuff going on. So there's an awful lot of stuff out there um, that people can find if, if they want to find it. Um, you know, a lot of it I've never heard of. Um, reviews of my own book reviewed by people in publications I've never heard of. I'm not even sure who reads them or what, what they're doing. Um, and I don't really pay much attention to these kind of things. But then I've never really paid much attention to things anyway like that because I think the sort of clamour of voices or people self-promoting or their pals promoting or whatever it's really of no interest to me mm. at all um, and if you ask anybody in this country who writes about politics or football you know they, they actually follow the streams of what people have said at the end of their articles and my point to them is why bother? Why bother? Let people have their say. If they want to say whatever they want to say and want to talk gibberish, that's fine. But don't upset yourself by reading it because it's, you know, and, and there's where you'll find not niceness. Mm -hmm. Then you'll just find vituperation nutcases who, from people who should be in, in an asylum. They, sh they should be locked up. So it's virtually most of the population, actually, when you see how many people do that. And, and one of the things I found, actually, is wonderful is that the, the papers that we always thought were kind of great liberal papers, you know, the Guardian and the Observer and all this, they've got the worst of them. Mm. The, bigger, the biggest nutcases are writing for the Guardian and the Observer. <laughs> we all knew that they were like that at the Telegraph. But, you know, now we've found that they actually are writing for the Observer and the Guardian. Mm. And you think, God almighty, what kind of a country are we living in? But no, my, my main kind of contention really about the, the niceness thing was that people go to creative writing classes and uh, they, they have a sort of group of people to whom they read their work to on a regular basis. Everybody feels it necessary to be supportive of everybody else. And then when somebody finally gets a book published, they all sort of chime in with, isn't this wonderful, it's a great piece of work. And so this climate grows up where they then get invited to book festivals and they appear in bookshops and God knows where else. And nobody says at some point, but this is rubbish. Do you think that we're losing intellectual honesty more widely than just uh, criticism? Yes. And perhaps this is linked to a wider <laughs> um, feeling in coverage of cultural events. Well, I mean, you know, take book festivals, for example. You, you, you never hear anybody have an argument at a book festival. Nobody ever says anything, you know, beyond the fact that they're trying to sell their book in as nice and interesting a way as they possibly can make it. Until the audience questions, sometimes that provokes an argument. Well, I'd like to see a lot more of that. I mean, I'd love to see the audience stand up and say, for goodness sakes, a total blank. But people are so polite. Mm. They're so nice. I mean, I, came, I was at one thing, I think it was with Alex Salmond was doing something at the Edinburgh Book Festival. And, you know, it was so sycophantically in favour of what he was doing and all this. And the only time I heard anybody saying anti is when people come out and say, that was disgraceful, that was just some kind of nationalist, whatever. And you think, well, why didn't you stand up and say something? But they don't. Crowd pressure stops people saying things. Mm. Do you think book festivals are sometimes, uh, I suppose, a straddling the line between people coming to see authors that they're fans of, who just want a little bit of that experience. They want to turn up, get their book signed, be in the presence of an author, and the actual discussions that we're talking about as critics, perhaps there's a balance there to be had, and are book festivals 
falling on the wrong side of that. Well, sometimes the, the other thing to say is that you know there used to be literary festivals, so there was a serious element to them. You know, now they're just showbiz festivals, mm. and uh, fair dues, they they want to attract as big an audience as they possibly can. But it's it's a great thing to be a BBC presenter or reporter because you know you've got a guaranteed afterlife which is in book festivals if you're a failed politician you've got a guaranteed afterlife in book festivals mm-hmm. um, and you know you can't you look at some book festival programs and there's hardly a literary author on it I noticed that recently um, on the front of a program which I will not name but it had listed a couple of um, Piece and I thought, is this really the star of a book festival? It's it's interesting that they had seen that as the draw because it was perhaps the most recognisable or good global name. I thought I would never come to a book festival for that that reason. Well, I don't know what Gordon Brown's doing at a book festival. You know, he can't even write good books about politics. You know, um, mm. and he's a failed prime minister. He should be allowed to go to anything like that. He should be banned. But don't you think that an afterlife at book festival sounds a little bit like purgatory? Well, before they go to hell, you think? <laughs> yeah, no, no, they, they all think this is... I mean, I can tell you they don't think like that. I, I mean, no. I mean, if I, you know, I, I remember speaking to Alan Johnson, you know, who's written all these interminable memoirs about his terrible upbringing. And, um, you know, he, he just... He thought he's gone to Nirvana. He'd found that there was sort of a book festival and book festival and book festival, you know. It was just one long holiday staying in nice hotels with adoring fans queuing up to sign these books. Um, you know, there was never any kind of frisson of, of something, you know, uh, unexpected going to happen. You got, you, when Gore Vidal appeared at the Edinburgh Book Festival, the audience were terrified, never mind, you know, people were interviewing him on stage. I mean, you had no idea what he was going to say or do or, or uh, attack a member of the audience or whatever. Mm. They, they, Anyway, that's another matter. It's interesting to me to hear you talk about book festivals in that way because as somebody who works within books in a few different ways, I have only really gotten involved with book festivals from a, pers- from a professional or personal perspective in the last five or six years. So to hear your thoughts on how things have changed has been interesting. And that's really one of the things that was most valuable to me when I went through the Emerging Critics Scheme before and you were my mentor because I think sometimes as a younger person um, which feels strange to say now that I'm in my 30s um, it's sometimes quite easy to see especially with the rise of digital criticism and free sheets um, you sometimes will see your peers taking on um, positions of editor in these places and you, you start to think this is all there is, this is all there has been. But as things are increasingly changing, having the perspective of your wealth of experience in criticism and the standards that you hold yourself to um, was really valuable to me. It really made me think about what I was doing and why I was doing it and the standards I should hold myself to. And sometimes I was wrong about those standards. And getting out of an academic way of writing was probably the most important thing that I took from our sessions together. Well, I wish Creative Scotland would set up, you know, kind of like um, sort of literary equivalents of the Priory, and, and people could go straight from university to these Priory-like clinics. Mm-hmm. And they'd, cleanse they'd, themselves. Cleanse them. They'd be detoxified, <laughs> you know, and the, the, the whole kind of thing, that, you know, it would be... It 
it would be you've been in a cult for four years, but now you'll be okay. We'll get you back into normal life. Mm. But I mean, the main thing I, I always knew that, that, that this is if you treat it seriously, it's a, it's a long game. It's not like mm. an overnight success of somebody writes one novel, they get. Um, lots of slaps on the back, they sell reasonably well, and then they get on with the next novel. There, there was this kind of, oh, I, I, can't, I can't be, um, I don't know, Belle and Sebastian, but I'm going to be a, 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 a writer who's going to appear at festivals and crowds are going to come and see me and listen to me. Well, that'll be fine for a season or so, but what do you do after that? Mm-hmm. You think, oh, well, I'm here for 40, 50 years. I used to have young reviewers say to me, they'd be writing theatre criticism, they'd do it for a year, and they'd say, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. I said, well, you get better, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. And you might go on and do other things. You might then suddenly find your voice and then become a writer of certain kinds of books that you want to write, write about. I mean, this country has so many books that are not being written that, you know, there's a crying need for it. Everybody seems to want to write about um, murders in Glasgow, Aberdeen, Dundee, you name it. You know, nobody seems to write, uh, as far as I can see it, much in the way of serious non-fiction or readable non-fiction. I think one of the most striking examples of this is if you've ever been to Glasgow Airport and looked at WH Smith, which has a Scottish selection for hmm? uh, visitors, it's all murders. It's not even the most uh, recent or best books about murders. It's just any old murder. Yeah, well, I, 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 occasionally I try to read these things. And um, I decided to read about four or five of them to, to review, you know, murder books set in Scotland. And the first one um, involved, you know, sort of triple murder in my local post office mm. in Glasgow. Mm. Well, anybody going into that post office would know that most people are kind of drugged or drunk out of their minds, are totally incapable of killing anybody, you know. But um, Aberdeen seems to be terrible for murders. You know, it's, there's so many people being killed in fictional pages in Aberdeen, it's absolutely terrifying. Mm. Um, and everybody sort of decides, well, I'll have that town. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so you, you you can you know, is there a Lerwick murderer or something? There must be somebody out there who has claimed Lerwick as their hometown for murders. Well, there's probably been one murder in Shetland in the last mm-hmm. seventy years, but no, they're every year now. Maybe this is how people who are too nice uh, when they're doing other things are releasing some energy by writing books about murder. I don't know. I mean, I you know, I'm kind of interested in this whole digital thing and, and mm-hmm. how, or the online thing, the internet, I mean, mm-hmm. has anything changed from what we would call the traditional forms of print? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because I think um, when previously you were talking about people who would start up their own website, their own blog, um, I think a lot of the time people have adapted traditional print formats of reviews to online spaces and in some cases that works quite well. In some cases it's really just an extension of existing print reviews which are building their digital presence and younger reviewers are sort of coming up and learning from that and duplicating it in a way. But sometimes it seems it's not always the best fit for online spaces which are continuously changing and I think... Recently, Cambridge Analytica has been in the news and it's really made people think about the value of data and the information that we're disseminating all of the time, often habitually. I have my phone in my hands, as you pointed out, all of the time. Um, but 
there's a really strange thing happening and the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook story is a perfect example of this, of how people who are consuming um, are often themselves the product and using Facebook, using other forms of social media as a primary example. And I think we're only just on the cusp of understanding the value of what happens online. Social media has changed a great deal in the time that I've been on the internet. Blogs have changed a great deal and how they tie into spaces like YouTube or Instagram have changed. And I think really generally, not just within book review websites, but across the board, across um, news and other forms of um, information that's disseminated, we're really just at the beginning of understanding how to not just, not necessarily monetize that, but assess where the value is. I mean, should Facebook be paying us for the value that we put into the product. I mean, we're laughing about this, but recently we've seen how valuable our data is to them and what they do with it. Well, uh, Should well, we be asking more questions about this? And where does review fit into that? I wonder if we're still to, to see big changes. I, I think we probably will. Well, I mean, you could, you could say they should, but the question is, will they? Oh, I mean, the I'm sure not, they will never pay us. But I think. But does anybody pay? Does any, does any, say, Scottish online publication pay for people's contributions? I, I'm, I'm not so sure, but that Gutter magazine, which um, was mentioned earlier, mm. we will now be paying for the very first time, and it's only because of the backing of Creative Scotland that we're able to do that. The backstory to Gutter is that it used to be owned uh, and published by Freight Books, who some of you may have seen have uh, disappeared from the literary landscape. I won't go into too many details about that, but it has um, left a bit of a hole. Freight published Gutter magazine and contributors were never paid. And um, Gutter magazine was a real risk of disappearing until fairly recently. In fact, a lot of the back issues have been pulped um, now, which is quite sad. But um, a group of... Um, I mean, I was ready to go straight to the door of the place pulping it and um, start a bit of a revolution, claim the bag, but nobody would come with me. But anyway, a group of the editors or people who'd worked on the magazine over the years banded together and formed a cooperative model. We managed to secure funding, so Gutter will exist for the next couple of years. At least we will be paying as part of that. Now, I wonder if... I, I wonder what the future is beyond that, because... Although it's really welcome that Creative Scotland has recognised that Gutter plays a role in our cultural landscape, it does make me feel, OK, we need to see how else we can bring in money to make ourselves mm. slightly less um, reliant on that and a little bit more stable. So I think we've got our work cut out for us in the next few years, especially because with the demise of our uh, old publisher, We've had to buy everything anew. We've had to buy printers and photocopiers and mm. change website URLs and change all of our banking. It's really taken quite a lot of effort and money. So Gutter, to answer your question, Gutter will now be paying. But well, I think there's a lot more work we need to do to bring that review up to scratch, if I'm perfectly honest. I, I think if you just even pay a modest sum... It will be a, a modest sum, I should clarify. Yeah, but I mean, I mean well, it shows intent. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in a way... It empowers editors because if you're, you then have some comeback 
when mm -hmm. somebody submits something. Mm -hmm. If if you're taking everything from for free, mm -hmm. then you just take it and you produce it. I mean, um, I was talking recently to a friend of mine who produces a magazine called Nutmeg, which is a very beautifully designed magazine, uh, granta gutter-like format about Scottish football. It's beautiful. I've seen it. It's beautiful. But the thing is that you know it, it's not really edited. It's, it's just a whole bunch of blokes of a certain age writing about how much they love Scottish football. It's very blokey, isn't yeah. it? I have noticed but, that. But, you know, you know, can you combine something like that um, with, a, with an internet web presence that has enough subscribers, because they have quite a few subscribers, paying something so that you pay the people who are writing for it and therefore you can edit it and you can commission pieces specially for it. If you're not commissioning pieces, then you end up with a ragbag of what people send in or want themselves to be mm. published. Mm. And, you know, when, when I was asking you about, you know, has anything changed, you know, it's a kind of regret that I think things haven't changed enough from my point of mm. view that they should have changed there was an opportunity to change mm -hmm. whereas there used to be a lot of small magazines of a certain quality mm -hmm. now either they've gone by the wayside mm. and what has come up to replace them not very much mm. you know? well I don't know I think there are some that I find really interesting and they are small and um, they probably fill the niche where the people who are working on them are coming from uh you know, they really love what they're doing, but they also have high standards. And I think a number of them, they wouldn't just publish what was coming in there. Some that have quite um, strict editing procedures. And I, I would say that a few of those would be the Glasgow Review of Books, for example, um, which I've written for a few times, and Mark West, one of the editors, is in the plaid shirt in the audience. Um, and others such as Review 31, mm -hmm. um, which is a really good site, um, Human Bearcat, uh, who's based in London, operates that. Um, there are a few others as well. It's, it's quite interesting to see some from other countries, like the, the LA Review of Books. You know, it's, I, I'm not sure if they pay. I've never worked for them, but well, again, the LA quite Review like... Books will pay. Yeah, it does it, yeah. yeah. They have a great um, online presence, and I really enjoy reading their reviews, and I believe that they're, they're coming from, um, you know, quite a, a serious editing perspective as well. But, of course, when we talk about the shape of reviews and how things have changed... Of course, there's a whole other world on YouTube or in, on Instagram, and the lines are blurred a little bit there between what a book critic is and what a, a book influencer is and the value that they're giving to publishers who are um, actually headhunting some of these people who end up working for publishers, creating digital content, and content you know, gets quite far away from review, but there is perhaps a, a line there and there at some point on it. But I think it's really interesting to see the popularity of YouTube mm. reviewers, which I've never, I dabbled in, couldn't get the sound to work and probably too old to know how to work it now. But I see people who are much younger than me who are really, you know, getting mm -hmm. into this. And I think it's really interesting how they're, they're capturing an audience and they're investing in themselves as a sort of micro channel. But from the point of view of a career, I mean, how do people here make a career out of writing things, you know, that if um, websites are not paying for mm -hmm. things and yet you're spending all this time reading and writing uh, with nothing coming in to pay the bills, mm -hmm. you have to find places to, to write for that mm -hmm. will pay for things. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I mean, I have a, quite a simple rule. I won't write for anything um, uh, without anybody paying for it. Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't, uh, I mean, it's very difficult for me to get a plumber to come and do these things for free. Mm -hmm. um, and so if somebody wants me to write something, then they're going to have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. It's just, just a, it's a rule. Um, and um, 
I, I, it'd be pretty much an unbendable rule. Um, and, I, and I can understand why at the beginning of a career people take on internships Mm. Um, and again, I don't like internships where people aren't paid for what they do. No, I, I really don't it. like them. But, you know, you can imagine somebody doing it for a couple of weeks or three weeks or whatever, and then if they're doing something valuable, they should be paid. Mm-hmm. Um, but to write and review for a reasonably long time and mm-hmm. not be paid for it mm-hmm. is untenable. I mean, I go, when, when we started the List magazine mm-hmm. 30 years ago, it paid from the start. Mm-hmm. Pay, you know, it didn't pay a lot, yeah. but it paid from the start. And it does, it does still it does. pay. And, yeah. and no, Rosemary wasn't paid. See, Rosemary wasn't paid for lots of things. <laughs> I mean, but, but she was, she she was the restaurant reviewer. Yeah. Hard to believe. She was a uh, vegetarian at the time, and the, the restaurant reviews were extremely limited in mm-hmm. their ability to cover things. So mainly pizza. You wrote about mm-hmm. yeah. Because that's where I started reviewing, totally freedom. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the editorial feedback was priceless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure. I got, I got, <laughs> I got, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think there's this kind of insistence. You know, I was talking about Muriel Spark earlier. She, she, she got paid for everything, mm-hmm. and uh, was pretty ferocious at making sure she did get paid, uh, because you have to value what you do, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it, it does upset me that that. There are too many outlets now who seem to think mm-hmm. that um, people should do this for free. Now, mm-hmm. We have a regular contributor to the Scottish Review of Books, uh, Brian Morton. You know, he's a world expert in jazz. Mm. World expert in jazz. He, he wrote the Penguin Guide to Jazz and, um, and many editions. And he says he get, regularly gets asked from websites all over the globe asking them to write things and uh, basically they say but at the moment uh, the model of the publication is that we don't have any money to pay for anything mm-hmm. well cheerio you know so they lose the best writer mm-hmm. there is around for, on that subject because they can't afford to pay and, yeah. and in my view is that if you're going to set something up set it up so that there is at least some mm. um, intention to pay something mm. and I think um, it's probably worth saying that I think um, writers generally across the boards are seeing, because they're seeing decreasing incomes, this is again where festivals um, making money um, comes in, because a lot of writers will say they make the bulk of their um, money through speaking and creative writing and tutorial kind of work that's um, supplementary to the incomes they make from actually writing, and maybe it's not just um, criticism, maybe it's also how we're valuing writing across the board. Yeah. I would say that not all newspapers pay, so although we may have um, spaces still in existence, um, some newspapers will not actually be paying all of their contributors. The Irish Times is an example of this, where I think their coverage is excellent, but I know that they don't always pay for contributors and they're not alone. The Irish Times doesn't pay. Well, they certainly weren't going to pay me for something (laughs) once, and I said no. But I'm sure they, they will pay their staff writers, but not always contributing writers. And I think that's quite interesting and something to take into consideration when we're really, I think, as um, emerging critics, deciding where we're placing our value and what we're getting out of it. And sometimes I know that you're not fond of people building up a profile online and so on, but sometimes putting stock in your own 
blog or website is one way in which you will get something out of it? No, I, I would be very happy for people to set up things online and to have their own blogs and to have their own websites. And uh, My only reservation is that, uh, well, first of all, if you can set it up in such a way that people subscribe to it or have mm. to, there's a paywall that people mm. pay because what you're saying is valuable. They want to read it and they think it's worth reading. And so you have to find some way of advertising that so it gets... Uh, a fair bit of footfall. I think that's something that you need to do. But um, the, the, the problem, I think, is sustaining it. Mm -hmm. Because, it's, as I say, you, you know, with the Scottish Review of Books, uh, it's enough to pu publish the actual publication. Mm -hmm. And then, in the interim, over three months, to keep supplying it with yeah, copy yeah. that is interesting and news is very difficult. Because if you want valuable stuff, um, our budget doesn't allow for us to pay for people to contribute to the online yeah. edition. We find this with Gutter Magazine as well. It's also quite difficult to find the time to keep things going and of a certain quality mm. um, as well. Maybe you should ask some people here what they think. I mean, the, the Glasgow Review of Books, how does that work? How does that sustain it? It's, well, it's four of us and uh -huh. um, it's a labour of love, really. It's very much... It, it began as a kind of a way for, for all of us were in one respect or another connected to academia and it was a way for to, to try to bridge a kind of academic um, expertise mm -hmm. with a more general readership um, which is still largely what it is it's a kind of extended kind of networks of, mm -hmm. You, you know, so a friend of ours in Glasgow would go to another university and would mention it to mm -hmm. people there and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the reason it's, it's done with a zero budget is the amount of time required to apply to fill in applications for funding <laughs> is, is considerable. Yes. Mm. And we're already working on it as a as a kind of project that is in addition to the things that we do for money. Mm -hmm. um, talk about portfolio careers. Mm. But you see, the, what they would do in America, I guess, is they would find a wealthy individual yes. to sustain what you're doing. But if, if there is one out there, we would like to find him first and oh, yeah. you could have him second. <laughs> is that all right? Yeah. Find two. Hmm? Fine too. Fine too. But this is, you know, there's a, it's a trick. You can't, everything can't come through Creative Scotland. They can't fund the, the entire planet. But, but um, you know, I, it's very difficult to find other sources of funding. Mm. Yeah. I think um, we talk a lot about, in the various places I've worked, a lot of small arts organisations before my current job. And... Um, I think sometimes um, sustainability and uh, income streams are overlooked um, in conversation because we talk a lot about funding and uh, supplementary um, funding, but I've been in part of a number of um, arts organisations, really small ones, a lot of hobbyist ones that sort of become professionalised that really see that as an afterthought. And I think it's really difficult. Newspapers and arts review in newspapers are really... Um, it's interesting to me to see how they might change as 
Well, you, you don't believe in the arts-based declining, but... Well, I think the, 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 the declined from the kind of high point of maybe about 10 years ago, mm. when, you know, there was an incredible outburst mm -hmm. and, um, you know, there was phenomenal space mm -hmm. given. Um, you know, when I was at Scotland on Sunday, I mean, I had page after page devoted to the arts. We mm. run 3,000-word pieces every week. Mm. And um, the Scotsman... You know, when I was there, and David was the literary editor, um, you know, to my mind, the, the books pages and the arts pages were the most important parts of the paper. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you might have difficulty convincing the bean counters up the chain that, but if the people who are running the organisation are determined that it's going to be like that, then it's going to be like that. And, you know, our view there, uh, the Scotsman, was to find the best writers you could mm -hmm. in the country to write for you. It wasn't that was it, as simple as it could be, was find the best theatre critic, find the best art critic, mm -hmm. find the best literary critic, um, and uh, give it space. Mm -hmm. Because we knew that in, in a city that's supposedly a world city of literature with the world's biggest festival on its doorstep, mm -hmm. you know, for goodness sake, it was obvious there was an audience there for mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, I, I think we were kind of right. But... Uh, you know, circumstances changed. Other managements came in and, and took a different view. Mm. And um, I wonder if there's a demographic um, thing to consider as well, where um, perhaps this is a terrible generalisation, but I wonder if younger people are first consulting the internet or looking for a review online before they will habitually be reading a printed newspaper. But young people never read newspapers. Well, this is the kind of perspective that is really know. valuable to me because I don't really know Everybody how Everybody says that young people read newspapers. I don't know. I mean, I read them because I delivered them, but young people didn't read newspapers. Of course they didn't. They've got other things to do. We won't go into that. But, I mean, you know, they didn't read newspapers. They read the NME or Melody Maker or football magazines or, you know, mm. um, Cosmopolitan or something like that. I don't know. They didn't read newspapers. You read newspapers when you come up, become a boring old fart. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I, I read uh, the, the, the Observer and the, the Scotsman because I was interested in the books pages. Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in the rest of the pages. I couldn't tell you what they were doing on these pages. What are your favourite um, review pages to read now, separate from what you write for? You probably write for too many of them to have. No, I don't. I don't like... Um, I don't like... Well, I obviously love the Herald, but um, I don't like any of them. Um... I don't like any of them, actually. Why? Um, well, well um, I find the Guardians unbelievably turgid and worthy. Mm. Um, I, I, I find the Telegraph's perverse. I find the Times is full of celebrity nonsense and, you know, they think, they think that they've just discovered sex. Um, the Scotsman's pages are too thin now to be uh, the pages they used to be they have to buy in syndicated copies so mm -hmm. you might as well read the New York Times um, uh, Do you so, think quality has declined over time? Oh, the quality has definitely declined because um, you know pages that had Anthony Burgess as your lead reviewer um, mm -hmm. now have some nobody uh, who's you know, at Oxford University um, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the New Yorker for example has become really boring, it used to be very good with uh, John Updike and others writing, mm. Alan Croce, um, uh, who was that great classical music critic, I can't remember just now. But no, the, the, the publications I read now are um, 
the TLS, the LRB, New York Review of Books, and, and these publications. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are um, thriving. Mm. Um, sales, TLS has recently... Sales are going up um, with these serious publications mm-hmm. uh, all over. Mm-hmm. And uh, guess what? They're all owned by well-heeled individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, people forget that the Times Literary Supplement is owned by Rupert Murdoch. In fact, Rupert Murdoch has forgotten he owns it. Um, um, and uh, the LRB is owned by Mary Kay Wilmers. She's an American uh, heiress. Mm. She's ploughed £100 million pounds into it. It's quite intimidating, I think, for younger critics as they're coming up and trying to find spaces to build their portfolio and perhaps be paid for it as well. Um, to, I think, sometimes approach criticism. Certainly when I first applied for this scheme, it was the first time I, I kind of fell into criticism because, you know, I have a habit of surrounding myself with books and sometimes it doesn't always feel healthy, but I have to always be writing or reading or doing something. And I think criticism was a byproduct of that love it wasn't something I set out to do, but I think a scheme like this helped me connect the dots a little bit more because I wasn't really sure how to pitch. I wasn't really sure how it would typically work and it did feel a little bit mysterious to me, much like publishing as well, actually. But, you know, it has to have, you know, all criticism has to have context. Like I was saying, I, you know, if I was a theatre reviewer, mm. you know, I would have to know the, the, the history of at least mm-hmm. Scottish theatre mm-hmm. and have uh, some idea about you know, international theatre mm. and trends and all the rest of it mm-hmm. um, before I started to review. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it may not be germane to what you do day to day, but it's, it's in the back of your mind. You know mm. that it's there. Well, I think, actually, being a critic helps me be a better editor in my day job, and being an editor helps me be a better critic. But... I think coming out of that academic background and really, I think, a publication like the Glasgow Review of Books, where it sort of bridges that gap, was my first step in reviewing, really. The first time I'd been edited as a reviewer and I was horrified to cut lines, which was ridiculous of me. But I really learned from you, actually, that a lot of what I was writing was crap. And (laughs) I should... I look back now at what I was writing even a year ago and I think I've really gotten rid of a lot of... And I think I've come to realise the reviews I really dislike reading as a, a reader are the ones that try to be too clever, that really try to position themselves in a sort of just very knowledgeable way that are not necessarily drawing on their knowledge but displaying it. And I think um, it, I really learned the process made me cut out a lot of academic um, fuss that wasn't really uh, translating well to a more general readership. Well, you said, I mean, we should open it up a bit, perhaps, but, the, the, you know, academics have changed. Um, they've changed hugely. Um, they, they used to be much more um, sort of broad-minded, eclectic in their influences. Um, they beca- they've become, in recent years, unbelievably specialised and, un- and specialised about unimportant things. So, you know, to... to, to be teaching certain subjects that they're teaching is unworthy of people spending their day job doing that. But, you know, to have the likes of the people we knew, like Angus Calder, who could write about huge tomes about the British Empire, 
while writing brilliantly about Dickens's great expectations, or uh, T.S. Eliot, or writing poetry themselves, or his father-in-law, David Deitches, you know, mm -hmm. just a, a mesmeric lecturer uh, who everybody could understand what he was saying. Whereas actually, you know, nowadays the academics I meet are, are so honed in their tiny area of subject that um, it reminds me of, what is it, uh, Kosoyubon in uh, Middlemarch, you know, and these sort of huge, futile tasks that they take on. Mm. I mean, I'm, I don't know what the suicide rates are in universities, but it must be high to do that kind of stuff. You know, okay, hi. Um, I'm an academic and a novelist and a bit of a critic. And, and so I just wanted to reflect a little bit on uh, the academic side, I suppose, since it's sort of getting hammered a little bit. Um, one point would be that increasingly in academia, the emphasis is actually on communicating better, on impact, et cetera, et cetera. So we could equally have a whole discussion about how academia is being dumbed down and it's going the other way. Yeah. I mean, I... Personally, I... I Maybe it was being dumbed down. Yeah, I mean, I, personally, I think that things have always been bad and, and or always been good, and, and they just sort of... The good and bad uh, happen in different ways. But another another little point I was just sort of thinking about that had come up, because there's quite a lot of discussion of the economic side of it, which obviously is important. We've all got to make a living. Um, but sort of thinking of it from the point of view of a novelist, well, nobody sits down thinking, I'm going to write a novel because I want to make money out of it. You, you do it for the love of it, and if you make anything, then that's a bonus. Um, with criticism in academic life, there's a sort of assumption that you're going to be doing an awful lot of work that you're not going to get paid for. You write a journal article, nobody's going to pay you for that. It's a lot of work. So I think there's a different kinds of mindset we can we can have in these things, and and I, I think you're absolutely right, Alan. That that you know somebody asks you to do a, a journalistic piece or something. Well, yeah, how much are you going to pay me? I, the, the you know, it's like asking your plumber to come and work for nothing. I absolutely agree, but at the same time, there are an awful lot of things that we do because we want to do them, you know. And if we've got something that we want to say maybe the world doesn't owe us a living. You know, so I think as well as thinking about the, the economic side of it, which is obviously important, also just thinking about what is critique for? Why, why do we want to give some kind of judgment to the world on, on how we respond to things? And that, that goes back to, to points coming up at the start, that critique is almost a kind of art in its own right. And most of the art that we produce, we do it for the love of it. We, you know, we're, not, we're not thinking of a, of a career. Yeah, I, I mean, I think all that's really interesting because, well, academics writing learned pieces for learned journals has its own payback. It's, it's contributing to a CV, assuming. Uh, um, I, I mean, the kind of thing I, I find sort of missing, really, is this the sort of uh, where one thinks about, well, I want to write something and I want to communicate this to the world. You know, it, it, for, this is what I call sort of, um, well, they call non-creative writing or the other words for it, but the, the sort of literary essay, um, the, the, the personal essay, the essay that you want to write uh, because a subject is burning in your head. Well, um, 
I'm all in favour of that. And uh, it sort of grieves me that the opportunities for people to write these things and the places to publish them seem to have died. And, um, you know, I'd very much like there to be a, a, a complete uh, rebirth of all that. Um, it still exists to a degree in America, um, the, 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 the essay um, as, a, as a form. However, it's getting worse there. Um, uh, if you buy a thing called, there's a, there's a thing called um, a series of books in America called The Best American. The Americans are great at these things. But the Best American Essays comes out annually and has been coming out annually for about 40 or 50 years. It's getting steadily worse every year. And the reason for that is that everybody has one essay in them in America. It's about how they got to America and what a hellish journey it's been, but nevertheless they've survived and it's okay now. Yeah? Whereas in the past you would have the great writers or the really good writers writing essays about subjects that interested them and they weren't just always interested in themselves. They were interested in Mickey Mouse or a, a, a walk down Broadway or some subject that interested them that they felt compelled to write about. And there were places in which they could publish them. The great universities, for example, of America, many of them have their own in-house magazines and pay handsomely for people to write for them. The great universities of this land don't do any of this. And the interest that, you know, here in this town, for example, Edinburgh University used to have a magazine called the Edinburgh Review. It took a great title, one of the great historical journals, and they closed it. They closed it. They weren't even putting much money into it, but they closed it. It's actually criminal. So when you were talking about impact and broadcasting what they're doing, it seems to me that they just pay lip service to this. I don't, I don't see what they mean by impact. What they mean is they've got huge, bloody great PR departments, usually with 12 or 15 people, all ex-journalists who found a bolt hole to go to because life was getting tough in journalism, and managed to sort of create a career for themselves and, and a guaranteed pension. So I, I, I don't know what Edinburgh University does by way of impact other than send me press releases. <laughs> doesn't even run good lectures to, for the public these days. I think it's always interesting to find that line between what should be monetised and what is difficult to quantify when it comes to art and any kind of writing. Um, as a publisher, there's increasing um, pressure on organisations which don't pay their interns, and I'm very glad to see that. Certainly, I wouldn't have been able to be a publisher if I hadn't been paid in my first position and a lot of pushback on entry-level positions, which are occasionally occasionally um, misrepresented as unpaid internships as a cost-cutting measure. But I think, um, personally, a lot of the writing that I do really is to feed something in my soul. I just have to do it, and it is difficult for me to sometimes to quantify that in terms of expectations of payment. Um, I think it's, it's really... Um, Something when it comes to review, I think a lot of people who are starting off in review nowadays are probably tacking it on to a different kind of work that they're doing. And certainly it's true in my case, because I'm not sure that you could really start off nowadays and, and make too high a proportion of your income from literary review. 
But you could do it, you know, I don't think anybody, I don't think we should fool anybody here to think suddenly you make a living out of this. But you can do it when you're doing other things. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, you can enjoy doing it. It'll help you find a voice. It'll make you think about your opinions and, and why you believe in something and, and, and why you like something, why you don't like something. Um, it makes you think harder um, because you've got to clarify your thoughts. Mm. Um, you know, I find... You know, I, let's forget what age I am. I find it more difficult now than I did when I started. I, I find it harder to write now than I did when I started. And um, I've just written a piece for the TLS. It's about 1,500 words. I think it's taken about three months. Mm. I mean, Christ knows what that is in terms of monetary value um, but you know they will pay for it eventually but but at the same time you know you're thinking well I want to try and say something I want to say it as well as I can possibly say it mm -hmm. so there's an enjoyment in that and you can have a portfolio um, that will help move, make you another kind of a writer Bernard McLaverty you know worked as a school teacher until he found he was earning sufficient money from his other writing to be able to give up school teaching that's, that's, that is in generally the case, mm -hmm. that, that people do these kind of things, they do other jobs, and then they move into to writing. Mm -hmm. But we have, you know, Alan here has been a freelance journalist for 60, 70 years. <laughs> About 85. About 85. That's an amazing portfolio of stuff, you know, of writing for a variety of newspapers, publications, organising film festivals, you name it. So, you know, everybody's juggled for a long time. Has it? Yeah. But I, I, I think obviously I'm, I'm a similar generation to you that if something has value, then I, I want to pay for it. Mm. I think we're contemplating doing something for nothing. But I think that in this model is perhaps a tenable position, um, and that there shouldn't be kind of rules and regulations that you know underline oneself be true. Mm. You know, if there's something you passionately want to write about, and somebody's willing to give you the opportunity, but they're not going to pay you, then mm. it's your decision really whether you. I've recently started um, trying new types of, we, earlier you were talking about adapting what you write to fit the form of publication and tone, and recently I started um, putting some reviews up on my website as a blog, which I've never done before as an adult, and I feel very strange about it. It's a bit of an experiment just to see how I feel about it, it's something that I see as a little bit more than just a few tweets about a book and a bit less than a proper review and really it lacks all discipline. But I think, I'm not sure how I feel about it. It does make me feel a little bit uneasy. Why uh, in sense. Well, it makes me think if I was writing a proper serious review, I would probably take a, a rather different approach as opposed to a quick sketch of a book that I just want to sort of take note of or recommend to other people. Mm. So I'm still assessing whether I want to continue doing it, but it's, um, I feel compelled to try it out. I mean, I can see lots of, you know, positive things about writing blogs or a kind of regular diary-like thing. I mean, we've been talking about this recently, about how people might write books in uh, particular kinds of books mm -hmm. that have a sort of journal element to them. Um, but you have the discipline of making a, a deadline mm -hmm. and a word count. And so you say, well, OK, every month you might contribute to this kind of a diary that will, in the end... Uh, be a book. Mm. There's um, some amazing fragmentary um, mm. narrative non-fiction works at the moment um, that I really like that probably started off in that way. 
Well, as I say, I, there's so many nods. You see, everybody. You see, when you said Andrew that um, you know you didn't, people were making money or wanted to make money for it. I mean, I recently um, gave a talk with others at Edinburgh University um, with a, a huge room full of students. I got the distinct impression that they did want to make money and that they were desperately thinking about books that would make money and had no sense that they were going to write, you know, Finnegan's Wake or whatever. They were thinking that they'll write, you know, uh, Rebus Comes Home eventually. What time doesn't have a murder yet? Yeah, which, yeah, <laughs> Oban, Here I Come, yeah? North Berwick, the North Berwick killings. Uh, anyway, enough? Oh, sorry, uh, Alan's, there's a lady at the back. Hello. Um, so I guess I asked this question as both a practitioner and a critic. Um, and to go back to this maybe slightly repeated question of the niceness of the critic, but also to the more general question of like why we are critics. Do you think that there is perhaps a perception of the critic as this sad, bitter person <laughs> really who hates the artwork? That's unfair, I think. Well, Don't well, you? I, well I think as a critic, I, I love the, the art that I, that I work with. And that's actually why I criticise. And with that in mind, do you think there should be more meaningful dialogue between artists and critics, particularly from the perception of the artist? And if, if there should be a more actual physical crossover between critics and artists, or if the critics should sort of remain away from their art and they should only talk to them through their printed or digital form or whatever that is? Basically, um, I guess this comes back to the conflict of interest thing as well a little bit. I think um, generally a critic um, actually I just mentioned those um, narrative non-fiction um, works. There are some critics who are straying into um, writing uh, books on that premise as well but I think um, my initial reaction is the critics should stay as far away from the thing or person that they're reviewing as possible, but I'm not sure if you have a different perspective. Well, I mean, hard to first, first of all, I, you know, the, the artists and critics, you know, do have a lot of connections. Well, yeah, artists might say they don't read critics' works, but they do. And critics uh, think about becoming artists. Um, we have some people here who do these things. Um, sometimes some, some people do it successfully. You know, you would say that well, I can think of quite a lot. I mean, Margaret Atwood, for example, started out uh, in general as a critic. She wrote a very good history of Canadian literature. Um, but uh, then obviously decided that she was better off and better at writing fiction. Um, so I think that's the case. But the problem is that there's a lot of people who are not very good at it. Um, and, and for a critic to write a novel... And then for that novel to be bad and unsuccessful and all this is not good for the critic's uh, reputation. Um, at least I wouldn't have thought it's very good for the reputation of the critic because it then allows anybody to have given a bad review to say, well, you know, if only you can do that, mate, you know. Um, you see this football all the time where, you know, um, people uh, criticise managers and the managers say, well, yeah, what happened to you? You were fired two weeks ago. Now you're a pundit. Can you take one more question? Mm, this yeah, session? Andrew, Alan wanted to. Um, <clears throat> you talked about the term novel meaning to make new. What, how can criticism 
make itself new and what, what are the interest in, or where are the interest in places criticism is moving in a, in a positive sense? What are people doing now that is maybe stylistically or, or maybe due to the technology is different and, and better? You see, that's quite an interesting question because I, I was actually partly thinking about on the way here because, you know, some of these critics I mentioned earlier that I, I read when I was um, sort of starting out, and there's lots of others, uh, Derrida and people of that ilk, Frank Kermode, others, they all sort of marked out their territory as critics. They had a certain particular shtick. You, know, you would say that somebody like James Wood, the New Yorker, you know, he's a critic consciously, consistently looking for religion in work. You know, he's, he's, he's looking at the sort of moral core of a work, and if it fails there, it's failed in a sense for him. Um, and how does a critic... Uh, well, I don't know how a critic... Uh, it reinvents criticism because critics are basically leeches on the back of literature. Um, but, but what, what, what I'm concerned with is, you know, is I, I sort of look at literature and I say, well, what is it not doing? And you know, I say in this country, apart from the you know thriller drivel that just comes pouring out of a tap constantly, is that. This country doesn't seem to be very interested in, and I've seen this about poets as well, doesn't seem to be very interested in modern things or modern life. You know, the number of novels I read that are set in the rural hinterlands or on islands and among bogs and stuff like this, um, you know, there's nothing about politics. You wouldn't have thought devolution has happened. Um, there's no sense that you know, you're in the middle of somewhere that's staring starkly at the face of momentous change. I get no sense of this from the fiction that's been written in Scotland at the moment. Somebody will tell me a whole list of books that are out there. But, you know, I, I can't think of many books that have addressed the kind of momentous change that, or the turmoil the place has been going under the last year. And I think a critic can, can say that and let people say, well, stuff it. I, I write the books I want to write. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I was looking at Joyce's book, and it's almost like a political. It's almost like a political history of Scotland, as well as a history of theatre. Uh -huh. So I wonder if the critic can also maybe tell that narrative, or do they need the artist to do that too? Well, Joyce is. She, this is Joyce McMillan, who's a theatre critic at Scotsman. Well, I, I hired Joyce when I was at the Scotsman, and uh, you know, we took her from the Guardian. Well, everybody goes the other way. They think, oh, let's go from the Scotsman to the Guardian. We thought, no, we'll take her from the Guardian and we'll bring her to, to the Scotsman. And, um, but, you know, she's been a, a, a weekly, nightly writer on whatever the theatre is in Scotland. She can only comment on what is being put on the stage. She can't put it on the stage. She can comment what's on the stage, but she can't put it on the stage. She can bemoan the fact it's not on the stage, but um, stage has its own particular problems because of the economics of staging, of theatre audience and what they want or what they expect and all that kind of stuff. If you, if you ask any playwright, the next Scottish Review of Books is a fantastic interview with David Gregg, for example, about all of this, about the real problems of how do you, you know, 
cater for a, an, an audience that's not the audience that comes to the play. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. But, you know, I think only as a critic you can rail against the fact that um, things don't exist. When, when Tynan wrote about uh, Look Back in Anger, he could only say that because Look Back in Anger was now on the stage. I think in publishing as well, we ask ourselves a lot, how do you publish books for people who are not currently buying books and get them to buy those books? It's a bit of a riddle, actually. Well, the reason that what they do in publishing is they just look at the, the bestseller that's out at the moment and say, well, we'll publish one just like that. Well, they're not always... <laughs> well, look, I, I read the Times today and it says, look, you know, everybody's buying books about animals uh, because H is for hawk and now, you know, they're going to publish the Hedgehog Handbook. Delightful. We like hedgehogs. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to both our speakers, to Alan and to Laura.